HD Insights podcast is brought to you by the Huntington Study Group. The Huntington Study Group is a nonprofit research organization dedicated to conducting clinical research in HD and providing critical training on HD to healthcare professionals. Funding for this podcast is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you and sponsorship grants from organizations like Genentech, Teva Pharmaceuticals, Neurocrine Biosciences, Unicure, Vasinex, and Wave Life Sciences. Hello and welcome to the HD Insights Podcast. Thank you for joining me today. As always, I'm Kevin Gregory, Director of Education, Communication, and Outreach at the Huntington Study Group. Today we have a special edition of our program for you. We're pleased to turn over this conversation to Dr. Daniel Clausen, Chief Editor of the HD Insights Magazine, who you met on our very first podcast episode. Dr. Clausen will serve as guest host as he speaks with Dr. Ira Scholson about his perspectives from the research project in Venezuela in the early 1990s that ultimately led to the discovery of the HD gene. Dr. Scholson has had a prominent role in HD research throughout the years. He's a co-founder of the Huntington Study Group and was part of the team that developed the Unified Huntington's Disease Rating Scale, or UHDRS. This is also the first episode, among others, planned that takes a deeper dive into some of the disparities that impact access to quality HD care. In this instance, for the people in this area of Venezuela, the geographic and severe socioeconomic disparities that isolated them from the rest of the country. So, without further delay, here's Dr. Clausen's conversation with Dr. Ira Scholson. Well, hello everyone, this is Daniel Clausen, uh, editor of HD Insights. It's uh, good to be with you again on this podcast. I'm grateful uh, to Kevin, who's given uh, me the opportunity uh, to lead this podcast. And we're really fortunate uh, today to be joined by Ira Schulson, who all of you know, uh, he really is um, one of the pioneers in Huntington's disease research, especially uh, with the Huntington Study Group uh, and even uh, broader efforts like the Parkinson Study Group. Um, and today's podcast, we're really going to spend some time uh, looking back on uh, what I'm calling the Venezuela Project. I think a lot of us have been reminded of this work through some uh, recent uh, media uh, coverage and, um, uh, and just remembering HD uh, as, as we discovered the, the gene. And I realized that personally, I don't really know much about the, the Venezuela experience. I mean, I've read about it. I've seen some um, papers which talk about how uh, the gene was discovered, but, but I thought it'd be great to get some insights from someone who was actually there to tell us what it was like um, and hopefully encourage us to think about ways that as neurologists or as scientists, uh, we can help those who are underprivileged, who uh, don't have access to care as we look at our current state. So Ira, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Sure, glad to be here. Thank you. So, uh, I guess I'll just start off, Ira, by just asking you, how'd you get involved with with the Venezuela project? So, I, I'll tell you this. Obviously, from my perspective, I was one of many. I wouldn't consider myself a bit player, but <clears throat> I don't think I was the key part of the key leadership. That said. I was part of the Venezuela project yearly, usually during February from 
1980 through 1994. I think I probably went back one year after that, but so I had a good run on that with an incredible team, both on the ground in this field work and also back home in the laboratories uh, in Boston and um, uh, in Indiana. So, um, so I guess my role starts in 1972. I was a resident in internal medicine at the University of Rochester and saw my first patient there really by chance and was captivated from by it. Um, and I had no training in neurology. I was just training in internal medicine. And that same year in 1972, unbeknownst to me, there was a physician in Venezuela whose name is Americo Negretti, who had been following patients with Huntington's disease in Venezuela in the state of Zulia. <clears throat> and he presented in 1972, which was the centenary of Huntington's description in 1872. There was a meeting, I think, in Ohio. I wasn't there, didn't know about it, but he presented a video of patients uh, as part of that. And I think, as George Huntington himself said, it was kind of a curiosity and it kind of lay there for a number of years. Flash forward through um, completing my residency, going to the NIH and working in the uh, what became the Institute of Neurological Diseases with Tom Chase and seeing two, 250 Huntington's patients in a period of two years and in fact um, carrying on clinical research that was my entree into clinical research. It was mostly in patients with neurodegenerative diseases, Huntington's, Parkinson's, dystonia, other diseases. So by the time I completed my training at the NIH, I was fairly well steeped in clinical research in these neurodegenerative diseases. And then in 1975, went back to Rochester at the university and completed uh, a residency in neurology. And by that time, I was actually doing a clinical trial in Huntington's disease in as part of being a junior faculty member. I began to develop ties, some of which had their origin at NIH because by seeing all these Huntington's patients, I got to meet Marjorie Guthrie many times and Nancy Wexler many times. So that was one part of it. The other thing was that I became colleagues and friends with Ann Young and Jack Penny, who had at that time moved to the University of Michigan from San Francisco. And so there was a little bit of a critical mass of colleagues interested in Huntington's disease. Uh, by 1980, um, I had uh, become part 
uh, as first as a guest and then as a member of what's called the Huntington's Korea, uh, the research group on Huntington, Korea. And uh, there was a meeting in 1980 that the Young Turks that included myself and Young and Nancy Wexler attended the meeting. And of course we knew one another, but Nancy was very interested in this population in Venezuela. In fact, in 1979, the year before, she went down to Venezuela with Tom Chase, who was my mentor at NIH, with the ostensible goal of, is this really look like Huntington's disease that we see in the US? And in fact, brought back more videos and it was compelling, not just from the video, but also from the experience that Tom Chase and Nancy conveyed that this looked like Huntington's disease as we know it. And so that was really the uh, genesis of my involvement uh, in the project. And there was a lot of skepticism by the established people in this research group about, you know, whether this is Huntington's, is it really worth pursuing? But of course, Nancy having important aspirations and being a stubborn person to meet those aspirations uh, decided to go back. So in 1980, that was the um, first uh, contact that I had along with Ann Young, Jack Penny, <clears throat> and uh, a pediatric neurologist called Bob, uh, Bob Snodgrass that we went down to Venezuela for two weeks to kind of see this firsthand. So that's kind of a long preface to getting involved, but um, it happened kind of gradually, incrementally, over about an uh, eight-year period before we got involved and we had a taste of Huntington's disease. All of us were trained clinically or self-trained in movement disorders. So uh, <clears throat> we uh, went down to see for ourselves. So I'll stop there <clears throat> as far as the history goes and um, maybe just pause to see if you had any other further questions to your first uh, point? No, that's really that's really uh, a great summary. Um, it's it's interesting to hear that people were skeptical that this was uh, HD. Did I hear that correctly, or are they more skeptical that the phenotype was different from the phenotype they typically see in in their clinics? Uh, I would say both. Uh, they were skeptical as to whether this was HD. Uh, of course, we had no gene test or anything like that to know it from a genetic point of view, but at least from a phenotypic point of view, <clears throat> there was a lot of skepticism. Also from the video, there were a lot of young people with Huntington disease. And of course, we at the time associated Huntington disease with something that has onset in mid-adulthood. Uh, and the video included individuals with chorea and dystonia and even some Parkinsonian features who were younger in adolescence and even in childhood. So 
that might have been some of the justifiable skepticism about it. Then there was skepticism as to, is this just a curiosity or something that has research implications? That's really, that's really interesting. I, I guess when the, when the cases were presented, um, were they typically presented with uh, like, like um, family tree history as well? Or was it mostly the clinical phenomenology that was presented? No, it was mostly the clinical phenomenology. The, we had really no sense of the pedigree or pedigrees that uh, in the family histories that were going on. I mean, we knew certainly anecdotally that this was occurring in families in an autosomal dominant fashion. I'll be able to share with you some interesting stories about that, but uh, no, this was all clinical uh, information that was presented to researchers. And that research group um, that at the time met in Europe, I think it was in Oxford uh, in England, uh, they weren't all clinicians. There were a few clinicians, so most of them were, um, or some of them were researchers like epidemiologists, geneticists, etc., who were really uh, not that interested in the phenotype as clinicians might be. Uh, that's really that's really fascinating. So so I guess the idea from 1980 on is that there began to be a regular trip. Is that, is that how I understand it? Like in February, there'd be a regular cohort of folks that would go down there? Absolutely. Well, Nancy went down for, you know, the last week in January through February into March. So she, oh. she really camped out there. But we had these two to three week trips that we would overlap a little bit. Uh, Ann Young would go down. I would kind of join that. Uh, Jack Penny would come down. Bob would come down. So the clinicians came down over that entire period of time. And to give you a little color as to what this is like just coming down, uh, our main mode of transportation was an airline called Pan Am. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we'd all get down to Miami, take the flight from Miami to Maracaibo, and um, make our way to uh, the... Uh, uh, to the hotel, which was our headquarters, and um, get a uh, get oriented with Nancy. And um, I'd say there were three key parts of that work that went on, uh, especially in the beginning. It evolved over time. One was the uh, cultural adaptation, not that we adapted so much, but the culture there adapted to us. Uh, number two was the importance of the family history and developing the pedigrees. And um, number three was the quality control. So the first part uh, on the cultural one was the important critical step, really rate limiting clinical step early on. Uh, are we to be trusted? And fortunately, Nancy, of course, has this remarkable ability to 
engage uh, people and she used it um, effectively uh, first in 1979 when she went down there. And there were several groups to uh, become acculturated with. One was the government, uh, because this is a research study. By the way, behind the scenes, this whole thing was sponsored uh, in part by the Hereditary Disease Foundation and also the NIH. And Nancy herself was a program officer at NIH. And Carl Leventhal, who was um, a colleague and I think her supervisor really enabled this research grant to take place. So we were coming down there under the auspices of the U.S., we call it the U.S. Venezuela Huntington's Disease Research Study. So one is who are these researchers? And uh, so dealing with the government and getting their trust and support which by the way, compared to nowadays was relatively easy. They were very good political and um, organizational relationships already established, but that was still an important thing. The mm -hmm. second piece was just the community around us that we were in a, kind of an upscale community in Maracaibo at a hotel that turned out to be very important because we were able to use that as a base, but of course you're isolated in a hotel. And the third and most important part was meeting the Huntington's community. There was a, a, a small suburb of Maracaibo called San Francisco, not to be confused with San Francisco in the US and all these barrios, uh, these little neighborhoods around there um, uh, like um, uh, uh, um, that there were, there was a small barrio called San Luis and we would go out there every day, uh, probably get there about eight or nine in the morning and, and stay there until about 11 p.m. So it was pretty grueling days. Wow, wow, yeah. And so, so did you have a translator? You were talking about the family history. I guess that must have been challenging to um, elicit. I'm just imagining myself going down. Yeah, we became, all of us had a little broken Spanish. Nancy was more fluent in Spanish than any of the gringos who went there. <laughs> um, and uh, so, you know, that was a benefit. But we hooked up with the medical community there every little Barrios uh, had a clinician. They were not neurologists at all. They were medical doctors or medical nurses, mm -hmm. and uh, they served as translators. And we did have uh, from the U.S. some uh, geneticists who went down there. Uh, one was Graciela Pensadada, who was a um, geneticists uh, who spoke fluent Spanish, and um, she was uh, she was uh, very helpful and a researcher. Um, and the other was Fidela Gomez, who actually was a colleague of my wife's. They were both nurses at the Washington Medical Center, and she was from uh, Canary Islands in Argentina. And um, 
really. So we brought down two people who turned out to be really very important in terms of connecting. Over the course of time, we learned uh, at least street Spanish or first thing I learned was how to do a neurologic examination, at least a motor examination in Spanish, uh, how to order food and then uh, enough Spanish so I could engage with uh, patients. But certainly early on, uh, people like Fidela Gomez turned out to be really critical in terms of the Spanish part, but they brought more to it than that. They had really good clinical skills and uh, warmth and empathy for what we were dealing with. We'll return to the interview on the HD Insights podcast in a moment. We hope that you're enjoying this episode. As a nonprofit organization, the Huntington Study Group relies on the generous support from the community and listeners like you to continue bringing you in-depth content on HD, like this podcast series. If you like what you're hearing and are interested in supporting HD Insights through a grant or donation, please contact us through our email address, info at hsglimited.org, or by calling toll-free at 1-800-487-7671. We greatly appreciate your support. And now, back to our episode. Um, you know, I just wanted to circle back a little bit on the phenotype. You know, we think of Huntington's um, now, you know, we talk about the cognitive and emotional and motor symptoms. Did you get a sense that there were, um, I mean, we talked about the motor phenotype and, but like the cognitive and psychiatric symptoms particularly, was that a, was that an appreciated aspect of the pathology back then? Uh, yeah, no, it was appreciated that there was, besides motor abnormalities, there were cognitive and behavioral problems too. The most striking thing in the first day, and this persisted for the next 10 years, is how much this is alike. Uh, the differences were minor and um, really not of any consequence. Um, so the motor part was there, the cognitive part, one could even without being fluent in Spanish to appreciate that. And the behavioral features ranging from depression to frank psychosis um, were also very evident. You didn't have to be that adept at, uh, adept at, uh, at appreciating that uh, even without fluency in the language. It's, yeah, so um, so I guess from this, is it fair to say that we we you know, the the things like the UHDRS motor exam and such? I mean, does this have its genesis in those trips? Yeah, it had its genesis in um, after I think it was not, so we were there in nineteen eighty. We came down and then. We published, uh, Ann Young, myself, Jack Penny, the group published a paper, I think it was called in neurology called Huntington's Disease in Venezuela. Uh -huh. And um, in it, we, we developed a motor scoring system 
one to four in terms of chorea, rigidity, what, whatever. And we applied it. By that time, we had collected motor examinations on, on hundreds of patients. So it was a really rich uh, sample. So we published that. That was actually the forerunner of what later became the motor section of the UHDRS, for better or worse, because you know I think there's still problems with it. Yeah. But at least the motor part had its genesis definitely in Venezuela. We used a scale that Tom Chase and I had developed at NIH that uh, Ann and Jack refined and applied it. And it was, um, we were doing a standard quote, rudimentary motor examination on everybody who we met. So that, that was one of the jobs of the clinicians that we didn't have a patient who we didn't examine in a systematic fashion, at least circa 1980s. Yeah. So, so how did you record this information? I, I assume you had case report forms that were handwritten and probably was pretty massive in terms of the paperwork. Yeah, the paperwork was, um, so I was saying that there are three things, you know, one was the cultural part, two is the pedigrees, and that turned out, of course, to be important. Talk about paper, we would developed these pedigrees, we had a computer, uh, when I say we developed the pedigrees, that was really one another major contribution from Nancy and the group back home, Mike Keneally at <clears throat> Indiana University. And so we used a computer program to draw the pedigrees and we put them up in the hotel room on the wall and pretty soon we had to get a suite to do that because this pedigree was so massive. So if you talk about paper, that was really the key part of uh, paper production. We also had a lot of paper on these forms and as we started getting biological samples, paper on that. So the third part of, of it after the pedigrees was the quality control and so just in a nutshell, there's no question about Nancy's leadership and inspiration on this project, the, and especially on the second part, developing the pedigrees through um, really step-by-step -step tracing from the history, putting things together. People had different names uh, <clears throat> and they all had the same family name. So it wasn't like what we're accustomed to now. The quality control was interesting because at the end of the day, Jack Penny and I took it upon ourselves to ensure, and this sounds like a minor thing and probably the greatest contribution that Jack and I made to be sure that the name and the code we gave to people match the, uh, match the motor examination and importantly, the blood sample. So. That's what we would do. It was a very uh, matriarchal-led project by Nancy Ann, et cetera. So the boys <laughs> kind of withdrew in, in the evening to make sure that everything was tidied up and matched. So it kind of gives you a sense about how we were dealing with paperwork. Yeah. Um, I mean, therapeutically, 
what what was what was the what was offered to these patients uh, at this time? Were, were, were antipsychotics uh, used? We occasionally used antipsychotics, uh, uh, mostly in the form of haloperidol um, at the time that was available. Not a lot of medications available. Most of our therapeutics was treating uh, on my internal medicine background was helpful as was that of Bob Snodgrass who was uh, also fluent in Spanish. And we would be treating uh, diarrhea, um, insect bites, a uh, whole variety of things. So most of the treatment and, and occasionally bacterial infections. So most of the treatments were for day-to-day -day types of problems that people encounter in that environment. And these were not medications we brought with us. These were medications we tried to secure through the physicians in the community mm -hmm. who would actually uh, oversee in large part their administration and follow-up of the patients. So, but that was it. Um, medications I'd say played a relatively minor role in terms of Huntington's disease, but a major role in terms of securing this trust that we were people down to help. And of course, many of those interventions like antibiotics and uh, antiparasitic um, treatments uh, turned out to be very important. Yeah, I mean, maybe my perception of this is incorrect, so I'd appreciate you correcting it, but I, I get the sense that this community was somewhat ostracized from society. Is that a correct assumption, or is, or is that um, not the way it really was? Yeah, they were ostracized in two ways. One, socioeconomically, these were poor people. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so to that extent, you see that worldwide, but they also had uh, what people described as El Mal, the disease, and they, the chorea in the community was evident, and as was the gait disorders that go along with it. Mm -hmm. And there was an assumption that a lot of these people were drunk. You know, by the way, a few of them were. Yeah, yeah. Some were fishermen, and they'd go out all day on Lake Maracaibo, but then come back and uh, celebrate the catch uh, you know, at the time. So there was a mixture of things. But this was a group that was viewed as uh, relatively poor and relatively sick from El Mal, whatever that notion was. There certainly, except for people like the uh, Americo Negretti um, and uh, other Giron was another one who were clinician epidemiologists at the time, there was really no appreciation that this was uh, Huntington's Korea. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and did you, you know, we talk a lot about now, at least in our clinic, about caregiving and the stress of caregiving. Were, were you able to appreciate that uh, aspect when you took care of these folks? Did you see families really suffer as a unit uh, through, through this disease? Yeah, the caregiving was uh, really poignant. And I'll uh, just share with you uh, an anecdote about that as our Spanish became better and we were able to 
engage in the families, of course, that the size of the families uh, was enormous. Mm -hmm. uh, the average number of children that uh, someone had during this fertile period of you know, 10, 15 years was about seven kids, wow. some 14. So you could actually see as we gathered the pedigrees what the family structure looked like, at least in terms of a family history. But most people lived together, if not in the same house or shack, but um, you know, within this barrio. And um, I was very interested to, to um, learn from the families, you know, how they took care of each other. They, the care was remarkable, remarkably good, mm -hmm. um, and very empathetic and supportive. And I remember asking a family as I got through, I said, well, why in your, you know, why in families on average, you know, half the people are affected and the other half aren't. And I remember the response of one of the unaffected kids and said, well, that's that way because we need the healthy people to take care of the sick people. Oh, wow. And it just really kind of struck me, their understanding of what we now uh, appreciate the level of molecular genetics was the reason that is, was to be able to care for the sick. Wow. So you need enough healthy people to do it. And um, it kind of, you know, during the current pan epidemic that we have, you really appreciate uh, that you need healthy taking care of the sick. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. this wasn't infectious, so we had no concerns about that, but it really hit home on how from a sociocultural point of view, uh, care was really so well established. Now it wasn't care that we know it today, but I would put it as really good care and very caring. Yeah, uh, you know, just following up on that, I mean, you know, genetics, I mean, what we know now is much different uh, from what that culture experienced. Did, did they have an explanation for El Mal, was there as a was there a you know an attempt to understand what the reasons for getting sick were, or is it just kind of fate? Well, I wouldn't that you know make a distinction between heredity and genetics. You know, they understood that it ran in families, uh -huh. but they didn't understand, of course, that you know from a Mendelian point of view about the genetics, except you know for some people who had some clinical or academic training down there. So um, no, their appreciation was really at the level of care and family uh, unity. Yeah. Um, so so as, a, as the day would go on, would, would you have folks come to you or would you actually go to their houses? Like how would you, how would you kind of uh, find the patients who were maybe more impaired than others? How, how did you go about kind of getting in the community? Now, except for uh, the somewhat upscale, and I say this relatively speaking, neighborhood in which the hotel was, and there were some individuals who 
<clears throat> were living in the area where there were HD families, but they were relatively small. We'd mm -hmm. see them at the hotel and do uh, interviews and examinations. 95% of it was home visits mm -hmm. and not just in San Luis, but uh, also along, we'd take day trips to other villages along Lake Maracaibo. One Barranquitas is said to have the largest population of Huntington's uh, as far as density in any place in the world. And then on the southern tip of uh, Lake Maracaibo, there was a community, I'm sure you've seen videos of it, on stilts where people lived on the lake to stay away from the wild animals in the adjacent jungle. And there was a large community down there. So no, this was home visits. Um, and um, this was truly a field research project. Um, and we went out, um, as I said, perhaps every morning early and came back sometime after midnight, depending on where we were going. Sometimes we stayed in the community like Laganeta because there was, that was a long trek from our headquarters in Maracaibo. Yeah. yeah. What was the camaraderie like of the of the group that went? Did you guys become, I assume, really close friends and shared a lot of painful but also probably humorous anecdotes? I mean, what, what was it like over time? Did you become really a close-knit community? academically? Oh, yeah. I mean, there was a, you know, we went on in the ensuing decades to, um, to be colleagues and friends, and there was a lot of socialization and comedic release, you know, <laughs> along the way. So that was, that turned out to be very important and sustaining. And we also, uh, from academically, we published together and um, just to flash forward to 1993, after the gene was discovered, the, the establishment of the Huntington Study Group, many other efforts that uh, principally Jack Penny was instrumental in helping me, uh, you know, launch that initiative. So uh, you know, we went down <clears throat> in 1980, and by 83, um, largely through the collaboration that was established with Jim Guzella and Marcy McDonald at Mass General, uh, the linkage for the Huntington's disease was established. So we knew we were onto something. Of course, it took another 10 years before the gene, the link gene was identified through Marcy and, and Jim's uh, efforts. So we were part of that ride, not just socially, but uh, in, in terms of research and academic work. So it became a very cohesive group of friends and colleagues that was sustained to, to this day. Of course, Jack Penny passed away prematurely um, before he could, I mean, after I think it was by uh, Huntington Study Group and been going on for about six or seven years when he died. But 
Ann Young and I, and Nancy have, you know, remained close friends and uh, colleagues. And um, that was a benefit that has endured um, you know, throughout that time and to this day. Yeah, have, have you followed up at all with, with the situation in that region in Venezuela in terms of the clinical care? I personally have not. I've not been down to Venezuela since the early 90s. Um, Nancy, uh, I guess once with uh, Anne went, well, once Anne joined her, but Nancy's gone down from time to time to Venezuela, I think as recently as a couple of years ago. It's become pretty brutal, as we know, politically and economically. Yeah. Um, and so the project, as we knew it, certainly has not been sustained, but Nancy, through the Hereditary Disease Foundation, uh, has devoted a lot of effort and established some funding to keep the clinics going down there. Um, And, um, but I don't think they're what, you know, could be. And it's been a great regret that everybody's had that we weren't able to sustain this. But, um, you know, fortunately, Nancy has continued to try and sustain those ties. Yeah. You know, one of the things that impresses me most in just thinking about this story and hearing, hearing your experience is, is just the opportunity given by the NIH and Hereditary Disease Foundation to do this. I mean, you, you feel like in 2020, there may be a lot more barriers to going on something like this, you know, is that, do you appreciate that now looking back, like it just was a great uh, time uh, to do it and amazing resources. Um, would this pass peer review muster nowadays, you know, as we know from NIH type of support. And uh, I think that's questionable because this was really more an aspiration, not so much data-driven as uh, people-driven, and as I said, particularly Nancy Wexler. But uh, that said, field research um, has become less common. Big ALS project in Guam. Uh, There were other projects, of course, on transmissible spongiform encephalopathies that the NIH was involved in, but um, these types of large field projects, uh, at least to my knowledge, are much less common and would be more challenging uh, for uh, NIH support. Yeah, it's, it's definitely something that I can, I can, uh, I can see. Um, you know, I guess from looking back, what kind of um, experiences did you take away that you might be able to share with junior investigators or investigators that weren't a part of that, just as they apply it to their own clinics, uh, their own populations of HD patients that they care for? Yeah, well, I'd say first and foremost, uh, you hear this from old folks like me is, you know, to each his or her farthest star, you know, if there's something that catches your fancy and commitment, especially in a, in a research collaboration mode, 
you got to go for it and be prepared for disappointments and setbacks. Um, of course, other than this time in February and March, all of us were back doing research, not just on Huntington's disease, but on other neurodegenerative disorders. For me, it was principally Parkinson's disease and the Parkinson's study group. Anne and Jack were doing a lot of really important research in terms of describing the circuitry of the basal ganglia and using postmortem uh, work. So you have to do a lot of things. And um, of course, how many peer-reviewed reports have we seen where this is too ambitious, it can't be done, it's scattered and the like. We didn't know about that at the time. <laughs> it was just kind of head down. Um, so, you know, I think that's, that's an important lesson too, that you have to do things that you're capable of doing, but sometimes you have to shoot for your farthest star. And um, that's an important lesson. The farthest star is a long-term uh, project, uh, but day-to-day, -day it's sometimes more difficult to do that. I'm mindful of that. Yeah. Well, I can't thank you enough for, for giving us your time. This has been so informative uh, and I've learned so much about this experience. It almost feels like I was there a little bit. Um, uh, thanks a lot for, for, for joining us today, Ira. You're welcome, Dan. That concludes this latest episode of the HD Insights Podcast. I want to thank Dr. Clausen for stepping in and facilitating this conversation with Dr. Scholson. It's extremely interesting and valuable to listen to these two experts discuss one of the seminal events in Huntington's disease research, which has led to the innovative new treatments being brought to clinic today. As I also mentioned, this is the first of several future episodes that the HD Insights podcast is putting together to shed light on racial, ethnic, economic, and geographic disparities that impact access to quality HD care, education, and community connection. As part of this project, we're reaching out to HD clinicians, advocates, researchers, and study coordinators who might be listening and interested in sharing their stories and experiences working with diverse populations impacted by HD. For example, what inequities do you see in your HD practice? What unique challenges have you or the community you serve faced, in particular when it comes to health inequities in outreach, access to care, willingness to engage, and affordability of healthcare? we'd like to select a few stories and individuals to highlight in an article and future podcast with the intention of lending a greater voice to this experience. If you would like to share a story for consideration, please contact me by email, kevin.gregory at hsglimited.org. While this initial call to action focuses on the researcher and clinician point of view, we recognize the importance of other perspectives to this overall conversation most notably those of the patients, families, and research participants. Additional efforts will focus on bringing a spotlight to this group, which, in the end, is the group in most need of the microphone. Until next time on the HD Insights Podcast, I'm Kevin Gregory. Thank you for spending time with us. Stay safe, be well, look out for each other, and we look forward to bringing you our next episode. 
We hope you enjoyed this edition of the HD Insights Podcast. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to make sure you automatically get the latest episodes to your device. Please rate and review this podcast with your feedback so we can continue providing the best possible content. If you are interested in providing financial support for the work needed to produce this content, you can do so by becoming an ongoing sponsor or through a tax-deductible donation. To do so, please email us at info at hsglimited.org. That's I-N-F-O at hsglimited.org. Or by calling our toll-free number at 1-800-487-7671. Thank you for joining us on the HD Insights Podcast from the Huntington Study Group.